go ahead and turn with me your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're going to be finishing up the prologue, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, finishing up John's introduction of Christ and who he is as the Word. Now, what we need to be considering and thinking about as we continue looking at this passage is that God has always revealed himself by his word. Always. That's how he's functioned. He's revealed himself in the beginning by creating the universe. And how did he do that? How did he create? By his word. We've read that in Genesis. He revealed himself to his chosen people, Israel, by speaking to them. He spoke directly to Adam or Abraham or Adam. Directly to Abraham, directly to Moses. Moses wrote it down. Now his people have the Bible, uh, the Old Testament law, and he speaks directly through the prophets. And now what we're going to see here in these few verses at the end of the prologue of John is the culmination. It's the historical high point of God's self-revelation. His word will take on human flesh. Jesus himself is the crescendo of God's self-revelation, of God revealing himself to humanity. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says it like this. It perfectly summarizes what we're talking about. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's the culmination, marking Jesus out as the pinnacle of God's revelation of who he is. See, nature reveals much to us about God, uh, which was brought about by his word. The Old Testament scriptures reveal to us much about God as his written word, but those are both incomplete on their own. They're incomplete on their own. We don't have the complete revelation of God and who he is until the Son takes on, the word takes on flesh. And then we have the rest of the New Testament written. We don't have it fully until the word becomes flesh and walks among us. Now, before we go any further, we could be introducing some kind of um, neo-orthodoxy error if we don't guard ourselves from thinking wrongly on this. So saying that Jesus is the high point of God's self-revelation, that Jesus taking on flesh is the high point of God's self-revelation. Saying that does not mean that his self-revelation in creation or in the Old Testament scriptures is obsolete now. We're not saying we don't need those things now. But we can't say that what we learn of God and in nature, uh, what we learn of God in nature and in the Old Testament is unnecessary now or is worthless now. We must only say that it's incomplete we can't say that it doesn't matter now. See, all that we know about God comes to us from his word, his word that created everything that we see, his word-born creation, you could say, his written word and the word made flesh, incarnate word, Jesus Christ. It's often that we hear things like this, a lot of times by well-meaning people, but when this kind of thinking gets up on the level of seminary and pastors and elders, then we have big problems. But well-meaning people will say things like, well, God's relationship to nature doesn't matter to me and and you know digging into the bible and reading all of that i don't need to really understand the bible all i need is jesus that's all i need all i need is jesus i don't need any of those other things 
Well, if you're thinking that way and you're well-intentioned, then what we've just looked at in verses 1 through 13 in John chapter 1 has disproved that kind of thinking already. We can't divorce Jesus from creation and from the Bible. John's already proved that that, that cannot be separated. He is the creator of nature. He himself is the very word of God. So we can't pull them apart. They're, we can't separate it out. All I need is Jesus. I don't need to understand how nature and creation works. And I don't need to understand how the Bible or all those you know, details of theology. I don't need any of that. All I need is, is Jesus. We can't think like that. Let me explain it to like this with this illustration. Uh, Last year, or a little over a year ago, uh, Anna and I were in Kansas City, and I, when we were there, I was like, we have to go to the museum uh, for the Negro Baseball Leagues. So it's like a whole history of the Negro League baseball teams, and it's, man, it is a fantastic museum. So we're walking around, we're watching all the videos that are set up in different places, and we're reading the plaques and looking at the artifacts, and and then, kind of around the corner where we can't really see, I hear this compelling voice. Clearly some kind of tour guide, somebody, somebody giving an introduction on things, and, and I'm like, I gotta go listen. So we turn the corner, and there's this tall African-American man giving a tour to a Little League baseball team. The kids are there, and they got their uniforms on, and their pants on, their cleats on, and, and he's walking them around and telling them uh, a little bit about the history. And I just was like, we're following this guy. We're going to just pretend we're the Little League kids because I want to hear this guy. I mean, the way that he talked was so captivating. I mean, the way he spoke about uh, the Negro players and the history, it was just mesmerizing. I mean, the, the, he has a clear uh, talent for it. And so then I'm, we follow him around, and then lo and behold, who this guy is, his name is Bob Kendrick, and he is the co-founder and the president of the Negro League Baseball Museum. And he was there just giving a tour to these little league kids. And, and the words that he spoke during that tour, that was the highlight of the whole thing. I mean, it was so cool to hear him talk about it. But, but what his words didn't do was negate any of the plaques written on the wall. What his words didn't do, his words didn't, uh, in a sense, supersede and make irrelevant the videos that we could watch and, and, or the, the uh, other things that were posted all around. He was unquestionably, Mr. Kendrick, unquestionably the central figure of the whole museum. He's the guy on the billboard. He's the guy getting interviewed by ESPN when they do history on, on Negro League Baseball. He is unquestionably the central figure. But him being that doesn't negate the truth and the veracity of everything else in the museum. It was all still true. It was all still there. And everything there, what it did was, it just testified to Mr. Kendrick's leadership and to his ownership over it. Now, if I had to choose, I'd want to sit and listen at the feet of Mr. Kendrick tell me all about Satchel Paige and Buck O'Neill and Josh Gibson and on and on down the list of these Negro League All-Stars. I would much prefer doing that, but Mr. Kendrick is not contrary to what he approved being written and posted and shown all over the place. He's more alive than the building and more knowledgeable than those signs, but he's not contrary to them. 
Now, this analogy breaks down pretty quickly as soon as we read the first phrase of John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, Mr. Kendrick is a talented man. Go look him up. He is a talented and accomplished man, but he cannot become like one of those statues in the museum. He, he can't do that. He, he can't even sculpt them. He had to commission somebody else to sculpt those statues. Uh, the incomparable magnitude of what this verse just, just laid out for us must necessarily go without adequate illustration. You cannot adequately illustrate John 1.14. It just can't be done. Nothing can illustrate what this verse says. God becoming flesh and dwelling among us cannot be distilled down or explained by some other relatable occurrence in history. It's kind of like this. It just doesn't exist. It stands alone. This idea of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us stands alone as the most confounding and awe-inspiring event in the history of the globe, in the history of the universe. It's distinctive and unique and isolated. It's in a class all of its own. Just consider what John is telling us in the context of this chapter. Jesus, who he established, is God and is the creator of everything that we see and everything that we know and everything that we can't see because we're not spiritual beings. He is the creator, the one in whom all life is, the one who is himself the light to men who are in the darkness, that one became a man putting on flesh. How could such a one do this? I mean, how could an eternally uncontainable by any conceivable and inconceivable limitations become contained and limited by human flesh? How can that happen? Well, he's the one who decided that human beings would even have flesh. I mean, the closest thing that we can come to to thinking about this is trying to comprehend like a, the creator of the wetsuit putting on a wetsuit. He slides into the stretchy thing and then it covers all over him. And so all you see is black neoprene that looks like a wetsuit. But nothing could be far further from the reality of that. Jesus didn't just like squeeze himself into a human suit. That's not, that's not what he did. It was just a little bit tighter than was comfortable, so you could tell he was maybe suffering a little bit. It was a little bit just uneasy. You know, this, in reality, Jesus isn't wearing something. He's becoming something. The infinite God of the universe isn't just merely covering himself. He's, he's limiting himself with finite man. He's becoming finite man. I mean, this is where illustrations just break down because Jesus is not Clark Kent. Clark Kent and Superman. He's not Clark Kent because Clark Kent is wearing glasses even though he really has laser vision and can see through walls. Clark Kent runs up to catch people even though he can fly. And Clark Kent, he's faking paper cuts while he's working at the newspaper, whichever one it is, I forgot the name of it. He's faking paper cuts even though bullets bounce off of him. I mean, he's posing in a suit and tie when really underneath, what's he wearing? A cape and boots. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus' humanity is not fake. It's not an illusion. If you walk up and you punch Clark Kent in the face, you break your hand. 
But if you walked up to the word made flesh, punch him in the face, his lip swells and his eye blackens. He's not posing. He's not faking. This is really humanity. That should shock us. I mean, what we've read from verse 1 to verse 13, and then we cross over to verse 14, should stop us dead in our tracks. Who is this one? What we're talking about theologically is called the hypostatic union. The word hypostasis, it just means a particular substance. And what we have in Jesus is one who is truly man and truly God. That substance is particular. Jesus didn't compromise or lose one iota of his divinity by becoming flesh. And Jesus is authentically human. He's authentically fleshly. His humanity didn't diminish his divinity in any way. And his divinity didn't swallow up the humanity in any way. He is truly human and truly God. And as a side note, I, I'm agreeing with R.C. Sproul who said we should say truly rather than fully. Now, when we say Jesus was fully man and fully God, we know what we mean by that. But truly is actually a better way to convey that because Jesus wasn't fully in the sense man. He didn't sin. He never got married. There's lots of human things that he did not do. But in essence, he was truly man and always truly God. Now, when the word became flesh, he did not cease to become God or to, to be God. That's another thing that we have to compromise or not compromise, but comprehend rather, understand that when Jesus assumes a human nature, he does it without laying aside the divine nature. Again, this is where pop culture and superheroes don't help us at all. He's not like Spider-Man. Spider-Man is Peter Parker or Peter Parker is Spider-Man. He can't be both at the same time, right? He's got the mask on, he's Spider-Man. He's got the mask off, he's Peter Parker. He cannot be both. And if he is both, then the whole thing is blown. Right? I mean, Jesus is not like that. One commentator explained it like this, uh, as far as uh, how can he be both. So in Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah is being blasted with uh, fire and brimstone. Saul, I mean, not Saul, Lot and his family leave. Lot's wife turns around and looks back, and what happens to her? She becomes a pillar of salt. And in that moment, she became something and stopped being another thing, right? She becomes a pillar of salt, this block of rock, and stops being Lot's wife. But later in Genesis 19, when, when Lot becomes a father again, he didn't stop being Lot, right? That's kind of what we're talking about here. That on top of this, rather, what Jesus did did not cease to be God when he becomes man, when he takes on flesh but true humanity is just added to him. And on top of this, the God-man, Jesus Christ, he dwelt among us, is what first, or what John 1.14 says, dwelt among us. If you got an old King James, it says tabernacled among us. That, that literally means Jesus pitched his tent with us. And that's, that, that should throw us back to Moses, right? The book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy where the tabernacle now exists and amongst the people and God's presence is there, but it's just a tent. And a tent is what? A temporary dwelling place. Something different has happened now. This, this word now, the word becomes flesh and God takes up his residence among his people, not in a man-made tent, but in a God-made human. That's what's happening to us. Now, why do this? 
you got to ask, when we come to familiar things like this, especially that are associated with the high holidays that we all celebrate, like Christmas and Easter, we need to ask ourselves questions that we would normally just not even think about. Why do this? John 1.14, why would the word become flesh? Why is John bringing this up? Why is it so significant? So what we're going to see fold in these five verses is that Jesus is God and he becomes flesh for a reason, so that we might know God. That we might know God and that the rest of the book of John is going to tell us why he wanted to be known. He wanted to be known because he loved us. And secondly, all of this is to his glory. The word wouldn't have become flesh if it didn't give glory to God. Would not have done that. God would not have desired to be seen and be known and be loving if it did not bring glory to himself. And God would not have loved us if it was not to his own glory. So let's look further into the verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John saw God in his glory. John, the one writing this, he did indeed see God in his glory. He did so in a couple of ways. One way in which the disciples, he's saying we there, meaning the disciples, the apostles now, have seen God's glory. Uh, they saw Jesus' glory at the Mount of Transfiguration. Look at Luke 9, verse 28 through 32. Uh, going back in the story, of, or going forward from where we are in the Gospel of, of John, the, the story in the Gospel of Luke. Now about eight days after these sayings, he, Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face, Jesus' face, was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. So this is a knee-buckling display of God's glory that John saw, saying we, meaning the apostles, he saw that. John and the disciples also saw God's glory just by seeing Jesus. Now let's use John's gospel to prove that. So John 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Okay, Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one. Now John 12, 45 says, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Now John 14, 8 through 9 is this. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So John's gospel proves there that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Now what the apostle is saying here is in response, the apostle John what he's saying here is in response to Moses' request in Exodus 33. And I'm not bringing up Moses arbitrarily because John's going to bring up Moses throughout the rest of this whole paragraph. Moses, in Exodus 33, at this high moment of the law being given, the tabernacle instructions coming together, Moses in verse 18 says this to God, Please show me 
your glory. John's saying we've seen your glory. Moses' question uh, a millennia and a half before is show me your glory. And God said, I will take all my goodness, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So what do we, Moses is saying, I want to see your glory. God's saying, you can't, Moses. You can't see my glory, the fullness of my face. You can't behold the glory of God and live unless that one beholding the glory of God is God. And he takes on flesh. Now we can behold the glory of God and live eternally by looking upon the face of Christ. J.C. Ryle, the, the bishop of Liverpool in the 1800s, who was a good evangelical, he said this, Jesus exhibits to us in the form of man all that our minds can comprehend of the Father's perfections. Everything that we can comprehend about the Father's perfections, we see in Christ. And this Jesus is indeed the only Son of God, and He is full of grace and truth. Back to verse 14. We have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now to shed light on that, we've got to bring Moses back up. Moses is going to be throughout the rest of the paragraph. Moses is allowed to see God's back, correct? And then God proclaims who he is to Moses. In Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you see that last phrase? That God is abounding. God says of himself, this is who I am. I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's just an Old Testament way of saying full of grace and truth. He says to Moses, I am full of grace and truth, steadfast love and faithfulness. Now John, in John 1, just attached this self-proclamation of God, I am full of steadfast love and faithfulness, grace and truth. He attaches that to the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Remember this connection full of grace and truth. It's going to come back up when we get to verse 17. But now John takes kind of a parenthetical uh, rabbit trail because he just does this a lot. But in verse 15, he says, John, talking about not himself, but John the Baptist, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So there's this little bit of an interlude about John the Baptist again. And many of your Bibles probably have verse 15 in parentheses. It's this parenthetical, just quick jog over and jog back. Hey, what, what, is he, what is he doing with this? He's trying to say, hey, remember, I'm connecting these dots for you. I told you about a guy earlier in this section um, that there's a guy in verses 6 through 8 that he was going to prove that Jesus was God. He's the forerunner who comes before him. Well, if I haven't told you that, I'll told you now what he spoke of, of Jesus as, is God. 
And he did so by saying that Jesus was before him. John the Baptist was saying, he's God, and here's how I know he's God. Even though he was born after me on earth, he existed before me. He eternally precedes me and ranks above me. And he's going to explain this a little further in the next few verses. But the whole country knew about John the Baptist way before they ever heard of Jesus. The whole country of Israel, they knew about John the Baptist way before they ever knew who Jesus was. So not only did John the Baptist's ministry precede Jesus' ministry, his existence preceded John's. He was chronologically, based on timelines being born of woman, older than Jesus, born before Jesus. But he confesses, John the Baptist confesses that Jesus was before him. It doesn't say he was preaching before he was preaching. It doesn't say he was ministering before he was ministering. It says before John the Baptist, Jesus was. And what does Revelation say that Jesus is? He who was and is and is to come. John the Baptist is saying the exact same thing. He's pointing out Jesus' eternal pre-existence. And then now he jumps back into the thought that he was already on. In verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness Jesus' fullness the word made flesh is fullness we have received grace upon grace verse 14 said that jesus was full of grace and here we see that from his fullness we receive grace upon grace but what is grace we say it all the time every other church is named grace something or other what is grace we, we understand what this is so let's just say you rob a bank and you get caught Mercy is going before the judge and the judge saying, okay, not guilty. Grace is going before the judge and saying, not guilty. And by the way, I just brought a brand new Rolls Royce, stuffed it with $100 bills, and it's yours. You can just drive it home after you leave the court. That's grace. Mercy is not getting punishment you do deserve. Grace is getting a blessing you do not deserve. So John is saying that through Jesus, who is full of grace, we've received grace upon grace? Is that, is that what he's saying? Uh, that we're just receiving grace piled on top of grace? Is that what we're seeing him say here? Well, yes, but, but there's more to it than that. We certainly affirm that God's grace abounds to everybody through Jesus Christ. Look, Romans 5 says that in verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespasses, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Jesus Christ, God's grace continues to wash over us like waves on a beach, one after another, one after another. That's God's grace towards us. So John is certainly not saying less than that. But if we don't take the time, we'll miss that he's definitely saying more than that so if you have most translations of the bible what it says in verse 16 is grace upon grace unless you have an old niv 1984 version of the niv it says something else it says grace in place of grace already given that's a different translation and i think that that translation is actually better because there's a word there in greek anti which literally means in the place of 
grace in place of grace already given. Now, this transition makes the most sense in the context because what's going to come in the following verse is to talking more about Moses. Grace in place of grace already given, that the law was given through Moses. So what John is communicating here in verse 16 is that God already has been gracious to his people, already giving them grace by giving them the Old Testament law. And now through Jesus, we receive grace in place of that grace. The people of God had grace in the law, and now they have grace, abounding in grace through Jesus Christ. So when it's translated grace upon grace, it just sounds like Jesus is just piling it on. Jesus got so much grace, he can just bury us in it. And, and, and in a sense, that's true. That is true. It's just not the whole picture of what's happening here. And we read our Bible, when we read our Bible, contextually. That's another reason why, just as a Bible study tip, I recommend having a lot of different translations of the Bible in English. That's a huge blessing that we have that most languages do not have. We have lots of different translations of the Bible in our language, and we should make use of all of them. They're all useful. But it, this concept, though, I said something earlier that the law was grace. Is that new? Is that a new understanding for you? It's commonly held that, well, everything in the Old Testament, that's all works-based. That's just you got to work hard, you got to be good, you got to follow all these rules, that that's all law. There's no grace in the Old Testament. There's no grace in the Bible until... First Easter Sunday, Jesus rises from the dead. Now we got grace. It's finally here. We didn't have it before. But God has been gracious from the beginning because graciousness is a part of God's eternal character. He can never not be that in its infinite fullness. So he must always be gracious. Look at grace in the Old Testament. Just a few big highlights. Where's the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve sinned. We just read that earlier. Adam and Eve sinned, and what did Eve know that would happen if they ate of the tree? If we're going to die. Did they die when they ate of it? No. Spiritually now, there's something different, but they weren't immediately extinguished in their livelihood, in their life. That's grace. And instead of killing them, he kills another animal to cover their sin. Grace, right? What about with Abraham? How was he counted righteous? Genesis 15, verse 6. He believes and God counts that to him as righteous. That's grace. That's not a fair exchange. Abraham didn't earn anything. In fact, throughout his life, he's kind of trying to unearn it a lot of the times, it seems. But he gets grace and salvation. What about through Israel, the nation of Israel? How on earth are the Jewish people even still here? Just based on the miserable cycle of rebellion against God, God saving them through some kind of mediator over and over and over again. That's grace. Unearned blessing. You know, even the sacrificial system was grace. You ever thought about that? Most of the time we look back and we read that when we just are trudging through our Bible in a year plan and we get to Leviticus and we're like, oh gosh, this is terrible. Thank goodness I don't live then and I live now. It's just better off. They didn't have any grace, but, but I do. But if you think about the sacrificial system, did God have to give his people a way to restore fellowship and reconcile with him? Did he owe that to them? No. That was grace. That they even got that. Now, was killing a bunch of bulls and goats actually paying for their sin? 
Was God like, all right, I know you guys messed up and you offended me, but you know what? I have a big need for a pile of rotting animal carcasses. And if you could light most of it on fire and then just throw the rest of it in a hole outside, that'll make me happy. Is that, did he need that? No, that was grace. It was grace for them to have to kill those animals over and over again and see the weight of their sin costing a life and spilling blood. God's explaining to them the gospel that is grace. It was, they should have been joyful to have this tedious law because the only other option was eternal judgment. So it was grace. Now, was the law that we see came through Moses, the law was given through Moses in verse 17, now, was that a taskmaster? Yes, it was. Did it imprison people in a way? Yeah, Galatians 3 said it did. Now, was it impossible to be kept perfectly? Absolutely it was impossible. And it, Romans 8 says so. Was it impotent to save people eternally? Yes. What was the main point of it? The main overall point of the law in Romans 3, 20 and 21, is to show you how sinful you are. So you have, beyond a shadow of a doubt, no, you are in need of a Savior. You are in need of grace. But it was still grace because this is an un, unflappable, no expiration date truth that everything that is not hell is grace. Hell is the only thing that any of us have ever deserved and ever earned. And anything that is not that is grace. Everything that is not eternal suffering and burning fire is grace. If we're not in hell, then we're experiencing some form of God's grace. Everyone who has ever been saved from judgment and eternal condemnation has been saved by grace. From the beginning to the end, God only saves people one way, and that is by grace through faith. Whether it's under the Old Testament law or in the New Testament church, all of grace is for everyone who has ever been saved. So the law was also the grace of God because it made the honest person long for something better. The honest person is there making the sacrifices again. The honest priests, consider a, a Hebrew priest. They were basically just butchers. You know what they got really, really good at? Killing animals quickly covering them clothes in blood every day, then having to go home and ceremonially wash and then do it all again the next day. They weren't, they weren't high, holy people off in the distance. They were slaughtering all day long. That's, that's what they were doing. So if they were honest, they would say, we want something better than this. This is never going to work. Who's going to do this when we all die? How is the sacrifice going to keep continually being made for me when I'm dead and gone? I can't make my sacrifices anymore when I'm gone. The honest person would think there's got to be something better out there. This can't be the end. This can't be what we live for over and over again. The covenant God made with Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai was not going to bring about the mission of redemption, but it was going to make God's people long for a covenant with a better mediator. But verse 17 says, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, now we can read that verse and not say, see, no grace in the Old Testament, nothing but grace in the New Testament. Two different ways to be saved, basically two different gods. 
we can do that. You can't say that now because we've seen the pattern of God's grace all the way through. The law was grace, but it was not the greater grace. It was not the final full grace. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. The old covenant, God had Moses serve as the go-between between him and Israel. And there's many times where he stands in the gap for sinful Israel to God. And God relents from the judgment he proclaimed and has grace on them. Because the mediator, one guy, went before God on behalf of everybody else. You know what Moses is doing there? He's serving as a shadow. He's serving as a type. He's not the substance because Moses himself is a sinner. Jesus is the truth. Moses is not the truth. Moses has some of the truth, but Jesus himself is the embodiment of the truth. He can bring a greater grace by ushering in a better covenant. That's what the new covenant is. He can serve as a substitute because he did keep God's gracious law. Moses couldn't serve as a substitute. He could be a go-between, a mediator, but he couldn't be a substitute because he couldn't keep the law. He wasn't full of grace and truth. He was just a, a, uh, a pipe that the water of the law could come through. That's all he could serve as. So Christ comes and he's able to be full of grace and truth because he is grace and truth. And what did Exodus 34 teach us about that phrase? That God says that that's what he is. So then therefore Jesus is God and can fully satisfy the demands of God's holiness. In the fullness of his grace and to extend that holiness to everyone who believes in his name. Do you see how John is continually building upon his theme that Jesus is God and salvation comes through him alone by believing in him? You see, it wasn't that the law and Moses were wrong. They weren't wrong. They weren't incorrect. Romans 7, 12 says so much. It says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It wasn't the law was wrong. It wasn't like God issued out an operating system and then it had some bugs and then Jesus comes in to update the operating system and get all the bugs worked out. That's not what happened. The law was good and the law was perfect. They, Moses and the law just weren't enough. Romans 8.3 says so. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law could not do what? Whatever was done by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The law couldn't do that, but Jesus could. The law was powerless to save us because it depended upon our obedience and we are powerless to obey. We're powerless to do that in our own flesh. But under the law, we were graciously provided a way to atone for disobedience by the sacrifice of animals. But even that was not going to be enough, ever. Look at Hebrews 10. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That word impossible in the Greek means impossible. It's impossible. It can't do it. can never do it. And Jesus says that he comes, and when he's, in, when he's uh, giving his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, he comes not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it completely. That's what he came to do. And now he mediates a better covenant. Look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, meaning Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. 
the true holy of holies, not the tabernacle. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. Much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. You see that? This book of Hebrews helps us know our Bible, our Old Testament better. It says that Jesus mediates a covenant that's better since it's enacted on better promises. And if the first one, if the one that Moses mediated had been enough, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But we know that there was. And Jesus is the one who brings that to us. Moses could not bring the elect of God into God's grace and truth because he was just a mere man. And he was our best shot outside of Adam. He was our best shot. The Old Testament says so. Numbers 12, 3. Now the man Moses was very meek, meaning humble, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Moses is the most humble man on the planet, according to God. And in Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, says this about Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel's life, in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. Even this man Moses, Moses whose name appears in the book of John 12 times, that guy's our best shot, the most humble, the greatest prophet that ever existed. He cannot get the job done because the covenant that he mediates is not good enough. It's not full enough. We need a better one with better promises and a permanent mediator who is God himself. We didn't need a man to save us. We need a God to save us. In verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's kind of a hard to understand sentence because it's just hard to translate. But Moses came the closest out of all of humanity to seeing God. He saw his back. Nobody else can say that in the history of the universe. Nobody else can say that. But he didn't see God in all his glory. And what we're saying here is that we need somebody, verse 18 saying, we need somebody who can see the fullness of God's glory and not be disintegrated. That's what we need. And the only one who can do that is God himself. And isn't that what John has been trying to say for the past 18 verses? If our mediator can't see God without dying, then what good will he do for us as sinners? But if our mediator is God and therefore comes from God, he can make, known, make God known to us in a way that nobody else ever could, no man ever could. Not only that, he can forgive our sin debt and grant us eternal life. And he can do that for everyone who believes in his name. And his name is Jesus. Now let's, this is 
lofty type stuff. Let's bring it down and apply it. In conclusion here, let's, make, let's put handles on this so that we can walk out the door and do something with this. Here's some practical implications of the incarnation of Christ, the word taking on flesh. The first one is your body matters. A lot of times we don't think that. We don't talk that way. But your body matters. Listen to what J.C. Ryle again says this from his commentary. He said, did the word become flesh? Then let us see in our mortal bodies a real, true dignity and not defile them by sin. Vile and weak as our bodies may seem, it is a body which the eternal Son of God was not ashamed to take upon himself and to take up to heaven. Jesus is still in that body. Now, a lot of times what we do at well-meaning as Christians is we, we denigrate our bodies because they break down and they're not as tall as we thought they were going to be based on our measuring as a two-year-old and we're not as fast as we thought we were going to be and, and now I can't eat these foods and I develop a soy allergy at age 38 and on and on and on. And so we just start cursing these bodies that we have. But Jesus has a body in glory, right? And it was the one that he took on. We're going to see him as the apostles did. We're going to see him as his mother Mary did with his body on. Now, what we're becoming when we say, man, I can't wait to get rid of this stupid, ugly thing, we're becoming Gnostics. You know what Gnosticism is? It was an ancient first century heresy that, that Paul ends up having to write against, and John has to write against the early versions of that in their epistles in the New Testament that says this, everything that's spiritual matters and is good, everything that's physical is irrelevant and probably evil. And we kind of become that uh, as well-meaning Christians saying, man, he finally got rid of that stupid body that he had. Now that he died, now he's in heaven and everything's perfect. God chose, he knit me together like this. My body does matter. And I am going to be resurrected in a body just like Jesus was. We're going to be embodied. We're not going to be ghosts with little Casper tails in heaven. We're going to get rid of the infirmities, but God made you this way on purpose. And if Jesus wasn't ashamed to take on a body, then we shouldn't be ashamed that we ourselves have bodies. And when Jesus took on a body, which kind of body did he take on? Supermodel body, athlete body, uh, handsome body. I mean, did, did he take the best one that he could possibly find? based upon the world's self-defined standards of beauty and desirability? No. What does Isaiah 53, 2 says? It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we would look at him. Nobody double takes when Jesus walks by. They're not like, whoa, whoa, it's a great looking guy. Nobody. And no beauty that we should desire him. Nobody was drawn to him because he looked so handsome and he just had the face of a leader and he just seemed to really possess this real kind of embodied uh, charisma. Doesn't say any of that. So all these paintings of beautiful, handsome Scandinavian Jesus are lies. <laughs> he looks like your average run-of-the-mill Middle Easterner. That's what he looks like. And if that was the body that God himself chose to take on for all eternity forward he never lays it off again then we can look at our bodies as wonderful too because we were made in the image of God to bear his image as embodied people 
And lastly, what we should take away from the, the incarnation, God, Jesus, the word taking on the flesh is that God's grace is incomprehensible. We got to take that on. What does all of this tell us about God's desire for our salvation? When God made man in his image and we sinned against him and plummeted the entire race of humanity into seemingly an unbridgeable separation from God, what was God's response to that? When God, we've read in Genesis on purpose because it correlates so much with John that God breathes his own life into this creature he made from the dirt and says, well, I'm going to put my image on him in the way I'm not going to do with anything else that I'm in the process of making. When that one rebels against him and defies him, what does God do? What's his response? His response is to reverse it, to take on our image and come and dwell among us Die for us and be raised again so that through faith we might be eternally reconciled with him, enjoying him forever in his presence from which Moses could never have spoken in Exodus 34. That's what he did. That was his response, was to reverse creation. God become man, not man becoming the likeness of God. That's the incomprehensible grace of God. And we should see that in the incarnation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're at the end here of this prologue that you inspired John the Apostle to write as just a regular old blue-collar guy. And yet you, you raised us to these lofty heights. And so now the table is set for us to forge ahead into the rest of the Gospel of John and to see your Son in flesh and what he does and what he says and what he teaches, and what he conveys, and what he's offering, and how he accomplishes that, that then was finished. We're going to see all of that in the Gospel of John, Father. Prepare our hearts to take it in. Give us excitement about your son taking on flesh. We just get so used to it, because even the entire country knows that there's a bunch of people at Christmas time who talk about God becoming flesh and being around us. And we can diminish the greatness of that or we can just get so um, used to it that we in a sense get tired of it father forgive us for that let us be amazed at this that through christ and his fullness we have received grace in place of grace and that he is full of grace and truth and that he mediates a better covenant that we can be permanently saved without hope in a pile of dead animals but hope in a resurrected God-man who perfectly kept your law and mediates for us even now, stands between you and your wrath and us and our sin and grants us forgiveness because his blood covers us. And therefore, you can then look to each of us and say, welcome, my son, my servant, enter my rest. God, we thank you for that. Fill us with awe in that. And we thank you for all of this time that we've had together this morning. Bless us as we enter this week in all of what you have for us in store. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.